Hi, everyone. Thank you for taking the time to join me again on the How to Save the World podcast. Today, I'm going to record something that I've been dying to record and put out there for I don't know how long. And we're going to go through a lesson of all the steps of how to use my signature behavior mapping template. Now, this is something I do in a workshop that takes anywhere between two and six hours, and it systematically and surgically goes through how you take your target audience or target user or person through a journey from when you have never even met them before, how you get into first contact with them, how you bring them to sign up or to sign on for what you want to do, and then how you actually get them to commit to action, do that action and see it through to the end and get rewarded and to continue to keep doing that thing that you want them to do. I developed this process up from something called user story mapping that's really common in software design. If you're a UI or a UX designer or you're putting some software together, this is just something that teams do. Now, those of us who work in climate and environment, we often don't have a software design background. So we don't know about this thing called user story mapping. Behavioral scientists also do a similar version that they call behavior mapping. As all of us here are working on the earth, we need our own version of this. And that's what I've put together. And because we work on the planet, it's a little bit different to what software designers and behavior designers do, because we are looking at these core environmental metrics of the planet. This is carbon dioxide, trees, liters of water, units of air pollution. And the other groups aren't always working with that kind of data. So as you know, I've done a deep dive into the environmental psychology of what drives behavior and also into game design. So I've developed my own signature style of user story mapping and behavior mapping where I've put it all together specifically for people that want to drive an environmental action that's going to shift the real environmental data. And what I've put together, I think it's now 100 different marketing, goal setting, data, behavior change techniques, and game design techniques all together in a systematic process that you can follow to make sure that you've developed a user journey and you've developed a concept for action and for change and that you've gone through every single nudge or style or design process that's out there and you can really systematically think through how you're going to do it and then rotate through all of the, the many various ways that you can design data, you can design color, you can design actions and behaviors. And this behavior map I've put together, I really feel that it's the culmination of my life's work. And it's quite possibly the most powerful thing that I can teach the climate and sustainability movement. It's what I use for every single project or every idea I put together. Now, I'm known for having a lot of ideas. I do idea storming calls where people ask me for ideas. And ideas come naturally to me, but that's also because I'm looking through all of these techniques. And then as you look through all of these techniques, and there is 100 of them in this behavior mapping template, each one of these techniques has 5, 10, 50 different ideas within it. So this technique is almost the ingredients. It's the ingredients to come up with the recipe for great ideas that are really going to drive action. And I've laid it all out in this beautiful wall poster. And what I'm going to do now is give you a mini lesson in how to do this style of behavior mapping. I honestly think that this is the most important style of design thinking that you are going to need to apply to what you are working on. And it applies to absolutely everything. It is ultimately the ultimate structured checklist to make sure that you have hit 
every single blind spot, every single mechanism and how you are going to psychologically tap into the people you need to, to get them to react and take action. I'm putting this podcast out now as a mini lesson because I am opening a new monthly climate action design masterclass called Gamify the Planet. And the first masterclass we're going to be doing is a deeper dive into this process. So it is exclusively for people that support this podcast and support my work on Patreon. It's $25 a month to sign up. It's patreon.com forward slash Katie Patrick. Some of these specialist behavior training design type of things, they're two, three, five hundred dollars. Honestly, $25 a month is enough for me. I love to teach this stuff. I don't want to make it too expensive or too exclusive for everybody. And honestly, I just want to start being able to put out some more higher quality detailed content to say thank you for the people that are financially supporting me to do this work. And for all the people that sign on for the $25 a month tier to join the monthly masterclass, I'm actually sending out a free physical poster. It's a big, beautiful, full color wall poster. I'll send it to you and you can put it up on the wall and you can have a look through it while we're going through the video and the audio. Now let's jump into the lesson. I thought I would just start to riff off the top of my head about any type of random concept that you can apply to this. So I thought, let's start with shoes. Okay, so somebody comes to me and they want to work on the environmental impact of shoes. Now, shoes are a consumer good, but you can apply this process to anything, whether it's political advocacy, air pollution, students, children, try to shift governments around the world. It is the template of how to make action happen. We start every project off by asking the question, what is your God metric? And if you get a copy of the behavior mapping template, what it does is have a big progress bar on the top of the poster where you figure out where you're starting, where you are at now, and the goal of where you want to go. And you work it out for one particular metric. Now, this might sound really obvious, like obviously we're trying to affect carbon dioxide or we're trying to affect air pollution or we're trying to affect the oceans. But honestly, I have almost never had somebody come to me with a clear idea of the metric that they want to change. And I'm talking about experts in commercial green building, the United Nations, government departments. They're always mixing all of these different metrics together. And it's very difficult to get somebody to act on a single number in a feedback loop and to prompt them if you've got multiple different environmental metrics, which naturally spin out into 10, 20, 100, 300 different actions, because you can't ask people to do 300 things at once. And that's a problem that a lot of programs without realizing it are actually doing. So we always want to niche down and understand exactly the number that we want to affect and then niche down even more to get very specific about that number. You might say, or what people always say is, but okay, okay, we're looking at shoes. Okay, well, shoes do have a carbon impact, but they also have a water impact and they also have an air pollution impact and they also have a waste impact and they also have a biodiversity impact. And there's this number and there's this number and there's this number and there's this number. But seriously, if you confuse, you lose. There is this thing called cognitive load and it is that people can't think about lots of numbers at the same time. Now, if you really want to do a life cycle analysis report and go through all of those numbers in a scientifically accurate, they call it scientifically defensible way, that's great for life cycle analysis reports. But if your job is to drive one particular person, like a, a company or a consumer, 
or a banking institution. To really drive change, you have to whittle that down and focus on one number. And one thing to remember with this is when you choose one environmental number, a lot of the others kind of come along for the ride. So I always advocate for choosing carbon dioxide. Climate is the, the big thing everybody's talking about now, and it's usually the easiest one to calculate. So if you can make progress on the carbon emissions reduction, you'll probably make progress on all of the other indicators as well. And it almost feels silly talking about this over and over again, but honestly, it is one of the hardest things for people to do to actually figure out what their God metric is, niche down, let go of all of the other numbers and just focus on this one. Okay, so we're looking at shoes. I advocate for just measuring the carbon impact of shoes. And this God metric can be a bit tricky sometimes because you might think, oh, CO2, okay, that's a God metric. But how are we going to do this CO2? Okay, CO2 per pair of shoes. I mean, that sounds pretty reasonable, CO2 per pair of shoes. But what if one pair of shoes is really good quality and one of another pair of shoes is really low quality and then there are shoes for different types of purposes, like hiking shoes and sandals and that kind of thing. So maybe a better way to do it is CO2 per steps or CO2 per thousand steps that we think the shoe can maintain its life. Or maybe a thousand steps isn't very much. Let's say CO2 per 100 kilometers walked. I mean, I think people might walk 100 kilometers. If you walk one kilometer a day, you get 100. Okay, and we're going to do it in kilograms. Total embodied kilograms of CO2 per 100 kilometers walked in these shoes. So we decide we're going to go for this. Kilograms of CO2 per 100 kilometers walked in the shoes. That is going to be our God metric. All of the designs that we're going to do are going to feed back in to changing this one number. So we look at the start. So where are we now? We have to calculate what this number is. What is the durability of the shoes in terms of how many kilometers they'll last for and what is the CO2? And then we want to be able to measure the progress and then we want to figure out what our goal is. This is one thing that I find almost everybody misses and I missed it so much that I don't even have a section for goals in my book because I only really figured it out after I'd published the book. The next edition, it's going to be in there as one of the main centerpieces. Let's say the shoes that we're looking at, they're about 25 kilograms of CO2 and we probably can't get them down to zero, but let's say we can get them down to five. If we think shoes are averaging about 25 now, we can probably get them down to five kilograms. And then we want to be constantly measuring our progress into how we're going. And that is going to be the master progress bar that will oversee our entire project or program or startup. So when you look at the behavior mapping process, you'll see the first step we have to do is figure out who our actor is, like who is our target person? Like when it comes to shoes, I mean, is the target person, it could be the consumer. So this is the process where we go through all of the different types of humans we're trying to get out to. So there's the consumer, there is the manufacturer, there is the retailer, who else is it? There's also the designers, like the people who come up with the shoe designs. So there's probably like a government department that perhaps oversees the labeling requirements of merchandise, like for example, the nutritional labels. And there are also different industry associations. So that I've come up with six different types of actors that we're going to have to influence to change the numbers. 
And what we need to do is go through the entire behavior mapping process for every single one. What we're going to come up with for the consumer is going to be probably pretty different to what we're going to come up with for the manufacturer and what we're going to come up with for the retailer and possibly the designers as well. They're all going to intersect and be part of the same process, but we have to be enormously granular and nuanced into the type of user journey that we're designing for each one of these types of people. And if you're actually designing an app or a software interface, you have to be incredibly specific about asking these questions and figuring out these maps because you need to be able to figure out how to design the button and which button's going to click on what and what it's going to bring up. And then the computer programmer has to actually design it up. So that's part of why we go through this in so much detail is to actually develop the skeleton of your UI design. You don't need to be designing software. You can just be designing a school composting system and we still use the same process. Let's choose our target actor is the manufacturer. They're probably the most important actor in this process. Now the behavior map has eight different sections and you can see they're all different colors and we start on the left hand side and we move all the way through to the end. So the first one is first contact. That is how do we first reach out to these people? The second one is the cue, how we cue them to act. The third one is the data. We look at all the different data that we're working with. The fourth is the action. We identify exactly what we want them to do. Not a hundred things, just one, maybe three, five at the most. Then we look at the progress tracking and the goals, how we're going to track progress towards a goal. Then moving on to nudges, this is our ingredients of all of the things that drive human behavior. And then this seventh section is called enhances. These are sort of fun things that you can do to kind of like adding like salt or spice or sauce to it to make it more engaging, to make it more salient. And then the final one is the reward. After they've done the action, how do you reward them? How do we trigger this reward system of the brain and to continue to encourage this behavior? So let's go to step one, first contact. You have a shoe manufacturer. I mean, how are you going to get in contact with them? And this is a powerful question to ask because almost every single person, more or less every single group or person I've ever worked with has not thought through this. People come up with an idea, they come up with a plan, they come up with a program. And then I say, well, how are you going to, how are they going to hear about it? And then it's just blank. And there's a reason why this question comes first is because how you get out to people, that first contact when you go from somebody who's never heard of you or your organization and then they do hear about you, that can dramatically change how the project fits together. Because if you're just working on an assumption that people are just going to somehow find your app somewhere or they're just going to sort of hear about it through friends or see it on Facebook, which is really an assumption that a lot of people make, unless you've really tried to get something off the ground before and been in the trenches of trying to get people's attention, you don't really realize what a big step this is and it can easily take up 80% of the work of the project. So we ask the question, how will they first see it? And under this section of first contact, I've got 18 different methods. That's all of the ones that I know of that you can use to grab the attention of somebody that has never heard of you before. So we go through them systematically and we figure out which ones are a fit. So the first one is conversation. Can you spark a real human conversation somewhere? Is that going to be your actual design and marketing technique that we're going to work from? The next one is a social media feed. Is it a digital wall display? Does somebody walk into work and they see a digital display on the wall or in the elevator? Do they find something on YouTube? Are people looking up how to grow better tomatoes, how to have an eco-organic baby or whatever on YouTube and you're trying to get into that algorithm? 
Is it a text message? Are you asking people to text message their friends? Are you text messaging people? Are they getting a letter or a letterbox drop? Often with cities, sending people paper printouts in the mail is literally the only way they have to get out to people in their communities. It could be a neighbour. Are you encouraging neighbours to talk to their neighbours? That's an entire design technique on its own. It could be a presentation at work. You could approach different companies and offer to do a lunch and learn. Perhaps you host some type of event, a potluck, a corporate event, um, an ice cream party on your street. Perhaps it's an email from a friend. You ask friends to email their friends to invite them to be a part of something. A presentation at a retail store like at Whole Foods or at Trader Joe's. It could be direct message. A lot of the marketing I've done is just direct messaging people on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn. I find personally that's a really powerful way to get out to people. You can get out to exactly who you want to. It sounds cumbersome and it is, but it really works. There's podcasts. You could be a guest on other people's podcasts or you could even start your own podcast and interview the sort of people in the industry you want to get out to. And then your podcast will come up when people are searching for that particular thing under the podcast players. You can just have an outdoor sign. You could write a blog article that people find when they're Googling things, making sure it's coming up on Google with SEO. You could work with employers where employers are sending messages out to their employees. Let's say you do something with Wells Fargo or Chase Bank, and then they send a message out to thousands of their employees, not to their customers, just to their employees within the companies. It's a really powerful way to get out to a lot of people. And maybe it's a wall poster. Maybe there's a poster up at a school or a workplace or a cafe. So there's 18 different techniques you can use to think through what will be this first Point of contact, the, the tip of the, the tentacle of how you are going to first reach people. Now, moving on to step two, then you have the cue. That's Q-U-E, like to cue somebody to act. Now, this doesn't necessarily fit with every type of project. A cue is something like when you get into your car and there is that dinging noise if you don't put your seatbelt on, or you got a text message or an email at 4 p.m. to say, try to use less electricity for the next couple of hours because the grid is really maxed out right now. So there could be a very particular time and place that you want to cue somebody to take action. And I've got an example of 10 different ones that you can use here. They may or may not be a fit for your project, but this is a systematic way of going through all of the different options there are. So it could be like a flashing light. Like I said, the carbon emissions of the grid are super high right now. So you get a little red flashing light that comes on and says, be careful to not use too much electricity right now. There could be some sort of color change to something using LEDs or even color changing paint or even just using sticky notes and stickers to indicate that it's the time to do something now. Browser notifications. If there's a way that you want to cue somebody to act, now is the time to do whatever. Use that browser notification. Audio chimes are used all the time to signal behavior. Even just a washing machine, when it finishes, it has a chime. How can you use audio to signal people to do things when you want them to do them? It could be an automated Facebook message, a phone notification, a phone call, a Twitter bot. You can design bots that can message people and do stuff to encourage people to do things at different times. It could just be an automatic email that gets sent out at a certain time. There's a lot that you can do with Chrome extensions that can pop up with little notifications and they can float around the browser. And the cue is once you've already got somebody in, once you've already got their attention, now we want to cue them to act in some sort of a way and think through that and how that would work for your project. 
Now, the third step is to really look into our data. We look at what data sets we're working with. So data types. I mentioned before shoes. There could be often all these different types of data feeds going into shoes. We decided to just work on CO2, but just think about there's so many different types of CO2. There's the harvesting and the factories that get the raw ingredients, and then there's the trucks that transport that to wherever the shoes are manufactured and put together, and then there's the electricity that runs that factory. Then there's the box and the packaging that it goes into, and then there's wherever it gets transported from. Then there's trucks and ships, and then there's the electricity of the retailer that's selling it. So you're going to have to go through all of those different carbon emissions feeds, all of that fuel, all of that electricity, all of that gas, and figure out a way to add that up and calculate it per shoe. So when we're really looking into data, we want to look at what we're working with in terms of the time frequency, which means how quickly it's updated. I've done a lot of work with the California Electricity Grid Carbon Emissions, and that's an awesome data set to work with because it's updated every five minutes and it never, ever seems to go down. Every five minutes, we get an update on what the supply and the demand is for the California electricity grid and how much carbon emissions it's releasing. That is the best possible data set that you can work with. Usually for everything else, it's not as time frequent. Sometimes you might only get a data set like once a year or even sometimes once every two years. And it's in a PDF report somehow. You really want to figure out how to get the time frequency up. If you can get it once a month, if you can get it once a week, once a day. Ideally, real time is best, but we don't often have that luxury. So we just need to work with what we've got and try to see if there's any opportunities to increase that. We're going to take some notes on the different time frequency that we're going to get for our shoes. And it seems like perhaps getting a once a week carbon score isn't out of the question. Maybe we'll have to look just at the last year. We'll have to look at the last 12 months of all of the fuel, all of the electricity, all of the gas, all of the inputs and work it out that way and perhaps work to developing a system that measures all of those things in a more real-time type of way. Then we want to look at all of the different sources, all of the grids, all of the electricity and then we want to look at geographic granularity. This is something that's often not talked about. Now this geographic granularity may not may not perhaps work for the example of shoes but what I mean by geographic granularity is a lot of time the data we're working with is for really large areas. We're talking about an entire country or an entire state. And if you can get that a little bit more narrow, like an example, like by suburb or by city or by street, you can get people having a lot more agency over this number because they're working with a number they can kind of influence. Like, for example, the carbon emissions where I live, I can have an impact over my own home. I have a lot of agency over that. If it was just my complex of apartments, you know, there's probably a couple of hundred people that live here. You know, if we all work together, we could really affect that. If it was our block, you know, there's a few more of us, we could get together and we could really change that number. If it was our suburb, I think there's 30,000 homes or 30,000 people that live here in Mountain View. We could change that. I mean, that's a little bit harder for me individually to change, but not impossible if we get all the businesses and the schools together. Once we start getting out to like the whole Bay Area, all of California kind of starts to be a drop in the ocean. And then that sense of agency that we have, that reward mechanism for feeling like we're making progress on changing these numbers is a enormously diluted. Usually all that we have to work with is these big numbers, but if there's any way that you can narrow that geographic granularity down, 
if that suits your project, that can be really, really powerful. This is something that a climate air pollution monitoring is doing. The EPA monitors air pollution with these really big areas. You get one number for all of San Francisco or all the Bay Area, and they're actually working it out address by address. And you can find 20 meters difference between one road and a few houses down, completely day and night different air pollution. And that completely changes the story of air pollution than when you've just got one number averaged out for these huge locations. Another way to carve up your data is to looking at how it's grouped. So you might have global data. And when I mean global, I don't necessarily mean the earth global. I mean global as in terms of perhaps it's your industry. So if you're working in airlines, it's not your airline, it's all the airlines. We're talking about shoes now. So I'm not talking about my particular company that I'm working for or consulting for. I'm talking about all the shoes, every single shoe factory in the world. What is the global data, the global average? Who are all the players in the game? Think about it like a football team or a football game where all of the players are football teams and they're all playing together. Now you can have like a great football experience just as one team if there are no other teams, but the whole culture and the whole entity of football is that there are multiple teams that play in a structured way, work towards a grand final in the end, and they're all ranked and they have these rules and this structure and they all work together. And every industry is like this. Every industry has teams, like football teams. We want to work out who they are and work with the entire landscape. This means if you're working with a school, the other teams are all the other schools. If you're working with universities, they are all the other universities in a state. If you're working with a city, you've got all the other cities. So if you're working with shoes, you've got all the other shoe companies. And comparing how your performance is compared to all the other teams will be an enormously powerful driver of change. And this is something that I see as really forgotten a lot of the time in the way that people try to come up with these programs and systems. So you want to figure out what the global data score is, and then you want to figure out what every single team's score is, and then every single city's score is. Perhaps a team is in a city or a city is in a team. And then you want to work out what the individual is. If it's with buildings, you could have the global could be the city, the team could be all of the hotels, and the individual could be one single hotel, something like that. Okay, so that's the data. Have a deep think about that. Now we're looking on to step four of the process, which is the action. What action do you want your actor to take? <laughs> Again, you'd think this would be so obvious. We know exactly what we want people to do, but it is a really fuzzy conversation at least half the time I have with people. It's we want them to do this and that, and we want them to do heat pumps and save the whales and write to their local city and or we, we, we don't really want them to do anything. We just want them to kind of like increase their consciousness and become more aware. To drive this down into a one simple action is, is really hard to do. I mean, I even find it hard with my own work because I want to tell people to do 100, 500 things. But you really want to isolate exactly the action that it is you are asking people to do because you've got to design everything around. Can you please do this one action? Maybe you'll have three or five. Honestly, I think if you've got five actions already, you just want to like cut the others off hard to do because often to solve a problem there are a lot of things you have to do but to get really good at designing for change on that problem you need to just pick one maybe one parent action that has perhaps other ones underneath it like a parent could be get rid of natural gas in your home and there's only really four things that you can do to decarbonize your home which is the stove the hot water the space heating and maybe the dryer because some dryers are natural gas powered so 
don't go any bigger than that. If you're starting to write lists and lists of actions, take a step back, just choose one and go deep into that. And you'll see under the first step is action. The second step is decluster the action even further. Even with the example of decarbonization, I was thinking about this a lot recently. And I'm like, do I really want to go and ask people to get rid of natural gas and then do these four things, all of which are each quite complicated, hard things to do? Like I'm not niching down enough. And so I thought, you know, hot water is really the biggest climate impact. So I thought, I'm just going to focus on heat pump hot water systems for now. Just very niche, very granular, very small, and then build out from there once you get a bit of practice. And there is nothing wrong with starting with one simple, seemingly unglamorous and uninteresting action, getting some traction with that, traction on the action, action traction. So get traction on the action and expand from there. If it makes your skin crawl by having to discard all of the many things, all of the many pro-environmental things you want people to do, that's okay. That's totally natural. Almost everybody feels that way. Choose one. It feels really small and boring, like get one child to grow one carrot. You'd be amazed how complex and difficult and deep it is to get one child, a child, I mean, who you haven't met yet, go out and meet them, find them, get them to grow just one carrot, and then get five kids to grow five carrots, that's like quite a bit of work, right? And then expand. Then make it a carrot and a lettuce, then a carrot and a bean. Then you can start scaling that up to, okay, now we've got permaculture gardens in all of the schools, in all of the families of all of the kids, right? You can always add all the other actions later. The fifth step is progress and goals. And honestly, when it comes to gamification and action design, This one thing is the master thing to remember is that making action happen using gamification is tracking progress towards a goal. Let me say it again, tracking progress towards a goal. I'm going to make a poster for this as well. Ultimately, all you need to do and all this is, is tracking progress towards a goal. And when you develop a process that is completely based around tracking progress towards a goal, you can't flake out and greenwash it and have it not work and have it turn into just talking and no action because every single thing you do is about tracking action towards a goal. And as soon as you start doing something that is not helping that tracking action towards a goal, it's kind of like a waste of time. It's not built into the fabric, not built into the skeleton of your idea and your concept. So you're like, well, we could do that, but it wouldn't really help us track action towards a goal. So we're not going to do the conference or the festival or the consciousness raising kind of thing, you know, or the nebulous education campaign. We are going to do the things that drive progress towards the goal. And it is all ultimately about that. That is all gamification is. And we basically take that basic concept, that basic skeleton, and then make it really fancy with all this, all the cool stuff added to the top. But that's the primary base concept to want to get, right? There are so many different ways to design this, so many different ways to make it fun and engaging and reward it and build in levels and all this type of stuff. And ultimately it all ends at a goal, right? The goal that the carbon is taken away, the trees are saved, the plastic is out of the ocean, whatever it is, it's all based around achieving that goal. And you want to give people that goal. So there's 10 different concepts to explore 
in the progress and the goal. So one is just like a progress bar. Do you have a progress bar showing the master thing you are trying to change? Another way that you can do it is called like eat the dots, which is kind of like Pac-Man. And you can get super creative in the way that you do this. You could have somebody like in a, in a game or an interactive experience where they're going through like a magical forest and they're finding like mushrooms and you have to like eat the mushrooms and in each mushroom is like an action or a change or or it can just be like a very simple five point checkbox if you've got something very corporate and very reductive and, and linear and simple that you want to do but the primary concept is you want to have go through and just sort of like eat chomp up all of these dots each dot representing progress like pac-man Another way is star charts, like when you give kids like stickers and you give people stickers as they're tracking progress. Super simple. You can do it with sticky notes. You can do it with stickers. I use stickers and these star charts like all the time, just in my personal life for what I'm working on. And you can also design it on a map. Look at all the houses on a map. Look at all the companies that you're working with on a map, um, the roads, the cars, etc., the hotels, and figure out how you're going to apply eat the dots or like a sticker chart or like a progress bar to progress across a map with the data that you're working on. This is something that I don't see done nearly enough, I think, in a really deeply thought out way. There's so much you can do with maps. And people do do amazing things with maps all the time, but I'd love to see more done with maps showing that state of progress, trying to inspire action from a beginning to an end. And oh my God, geodata science. I mean, you could just nerd out on it for like 10 lifetimes. And moving on to another thing that's really big in game design, but I don't think I've ever seen it really implemented in environment and, and climate, which is the idea of levels. So I've got two cards here. One is a simpler version, which is easy, medium, and hard, or just like kind of like a three level, almost like a traffic light system. So for example, if you're trying to bring somebody into plant-based or vegetarian eating, it can be too much to ask people to go all vegan or all vegetarian all at once. And honestly, if you can just get people 80 or 90% there, that's where you're going to have like the big impact anyway. So you might start people on the beginner level. Like what is the beginner level, right? It's maybe that you're eating one vegetarian dinner, not even a full day, just a dinner once a week or meat-free Monday or something like that. You want to get people all up to level one or whatever level one is of growing your own food or of zero waste. Maybe level one of zero waste is just using a reusable water bottle. We're starting really small here. And then you want to figure out what is level two because it takes people a while to adjust their behavior, whether it's an individual person or whether it's a system or a corporation or a government. It takes people a bit of practice. So figure out what level one is then figure out what the medium level is, the intermediate. Maybe intermediate is that you only eat meat on the weekends. Vegetarian during the week, eat meat on the weekends, something like that. And then you have the hard level, the advanced level of mastery, which would obviously be all plant-based all of the time. If you were zero waste, you would never be using any plastic or any glass or whatever. But just think through how you can break it up into these levels. This is what I did for a project that I did with the United Nations Environment Program. They put out this 100-page ecological regeneration document, which is all of the things that anybody can do to help ecological regeneration. And it's a mix mixture of just so much stuff. 
Like it has things like eat less meat, grow your own tomatoes, plant a tree in your garden through to ecologically regenerate an entire reef. Like stuff that you would really need to have a PhD and a team of funding to be able to do. And they kind of put it all together in this document. And as I was reading the document, I just thought, this doesn't have levels. It doesn't have levels. And so I built the entire application design for them. I started to divide it up into levels. So level one was the really easy stuff, like eat less meat, grow your own tomatoes. Level two was get engaged with a community organization, get five friends to grow their own tomatoes. And then level three was really the expert stuff where you were becoming a professional ecological regeneration expert. And as I laid it all out into these three levels with like a bar chart, almost like, you know, Super Mario jumps from like level one to level two to level three. I mean, it just started to really make sense, this big overwhelming document that had all this really great information in it, but it wasn't kind of teased out in a way that was really useful for people to act on. Another thing that you can think of with levels, if you want to get a bit more complicated, is have levels like one to ten. I've started working on a design for the decarbonization of cities and I've got 10 levels in there. And the 10 levels are just based on the carbon emissions of the cities. So level one is where you're at now, however many tons of carbon emissions per resident that is per year. And then there's level two, level three, level four, level five, and ultimately level 10 is where we've got 100% electric vehicle adoption, otherwise meaning no more combustion cars, no more gas stations, electricity is 100% clean, we've got batteries and storage for nighttime energy, there's no more natural gas. That is what a city needs to be to get a 10. The level system is just the total CO2 we have now divided by 10. To get each level, we have to take off another 10% and another 10% and another 10% to finally get to level 10. And bringing goals back into this group dynamic that I was talking about before, you want to give everybody a goal. What is the goal for the industry? What is the goal for the country? What is the goal for the team? What is the goal for the city? What is the goal for the neighborhood? What is the goal for the block? What is the goal for the individual building or the individual person or the individual company? or the individual product. Think of this concept of nested goals, like your own individual goal is nested within the bigger goal around you, and then that's nested into the bigger goal around you and the bigger goal around that. Now you may not directly use all of these different nested goals and what you're designing, but seeing someone's personal goal nested into their industry goal, so seeing one person or one company or one product's individual goal then nested into the whole industry goal can be really powerful. If we're looking at the carbon emissions per 100 kilometers of shoes and our goal is to get to this five kilograms per shoe, where are we? What is the industry goal? If you're looking at one airline's progress for reducing its carbon emissions, how is that airline faring compared to all of the airlines in the entire industry? And there's that real power in having those, that nested approach. Moving into the nudges, this is actually really the, the meat of the behavior and the gamification process. Now, this does take a while. So I'm glad if you're still listening that you're still here because then we, this is where we actually really get into the fun stuff of what we can apply. And I'll try to go through it quickly enough. And like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we're doing a deep masterclass into all of this. We're, we're going to go into more depth. You'll get the free copy of the poster that I'm going through. I'm also making a card deck so you'll have all of the cards like physical 
physical printed cards as well. And I also have a, a video series that you can go through and really learn this process, apply it, and you can even teach it to other people. I want it to, I want it to spread. I want everybody to, to learn it. Okay, so moving into the nudges. These are the behavioral prompts. Moving into nudges, these are all the behavioral techniques that you can use to prompt people to take action. There's a whole bunch of them here, so I'll try to go through it reasonably quickly. Okay, the big one is comparison, comparing people or organizations against each other. You can put all your players in a leaderboard or you can just compare people to the average or the high performers or the low performers. You can compare teams of people together. If you don't want to compare to anybody else, you can also compare to your own self-history. It's always important to remember to track your current progress in reference to your previous progress. Another thing you can do is ratings, star ratings. Will a star rating work for what you're trying to do? You can look at an ABC grade. They did this with restaurants in Los Angeles for hygiene, an A, a B, or a C grade. This also gets used with housing energy efficiency, and you can apply a color to that. Feedback, feedback loops, the fundamental thing that drives the evolution of life, the feedback loop. Don't skip it. A feedback loop is showing people the data from your God metric in as real time as possible so you are showing the change and showing the reactions to whatever they are doing. Feedback loops can be showing the carbon from the electricity. Electricity is super easy to work with. It could be showing the amount of water that's changing. It could be showing the amount of trash. Just think about how you can show that data or communicate that data in any way. It can even be done through like a text message or a Twitter bot. It doesn't need to be like a fancy app or a piece of software. And then you can apply color to it. How do you want to color grade that information? Red is bad. Orange is medium. Green is good. Apply color grading to the data so people instantly and intuitively understand what it means. There's a really fun thing you can do called the character gauge, which is really powerful. And oh my God, I hope it really takes off, which is making like a creature or an animal that smiles or frowns at you based on how the data is doing. You can do really cool stuff with that. And this thing called ambient data, which is something that's just on the wall. Like it could be, for example, a light. This is what I'm doing with energy lollipop that changes color based on the carbon emissions of the grid. So it's in the ambient environment. And Professor John Peterson, who's on one of the previous podcast who's a real expert in this says it has to be in your space in your face like somewhere where people can see it they don't need to actively open the laptop screen or open the app it's on the wall in the environment on the street you can't miss it 100% of people see it not just the people who maybe will like look at the app that you might build one day even want to look into the physical environment can you use signs hangers stickers you want to build stuff that sits in the physical environment is it something that like a suction cup that goes into people's car you know how people have those baby on board signs do you have something like that that says don't buy any plastic at the store today something that hangs on the door that says remember your plastic bag these might sound like small little behavioral interventions but they can be used as a seed or a lever or a springboard to lead people to take much bigger actions. Wall posters, just something on the wall at work to remind people or whatever. You can look at defaults, like are you making vegetarian the default dish? At my daughter's school, 
they mentioned in an email that she could have, she could choose the vegetarian option. And so I emailed back and I said, yes, I would like to choose the vegetarian option. But why didn't they just make the vegetarian option the default and then said, we offer vegetarian lunches. Please email back if you would like to opt in for meat. And I guarantee you that 80 or 90% of the kids would go end up going with the vegetarian lunch. That's what I mean by default. Just to see how you can switch these defaults around where we're just kind of doing things the way just because they've always been done that way or automatically enrolling people into programs and then giving them the option to get out of the more eco-friendly program that they're enrolled into. An amazing powerful thing is disclosure labels. These are the energy rating stickers that are on appliances and we're talking about shoes. You know what we want is a disclosure label on these shoes. We want every single box of shoes to have a sticker on it that shows this number, the kilograms of CO2 per thousand steps, right? Just like a nutritional label and then we work up from there. There's this thing also called the discontinuity hypothesis, which is that when people experience like a change in life, that is an opportune time to seed them with new behaviors. So discontinuity could be change in a job, change in moving house. It could even be a little tiny change, like how you do your laundry or which way that you walk to work. When we're disrupted and we're forming new habits, that's the time that you want to get in. So think through all these moments of discontinuity that happen with people and workplaces and corporations or whatever and figure out how to get in there. And also just look at the location and size of things, like what's up on the top shelf, what's on the bottom shelf, how big is something. Sometimes you see trash cans around and they make the the trash opening like really small and then they'll make the compost and the recycling opening big. That's just a tiny, really easy to do adjustment and it really changes the way people put trash into the different bins. They're obviously going to want to put it in the one with the larger hole. There are all these little low-hanging fruit behavioral nudges like that. Moving on to this concept called commitment. This is asking people to make a promise and it leverages this sense of trust that we have, very powerful core human instinct to be, to be trustworthy. This can be just like asking people to write down, I commit to going 30 days plastic free. I will switch over to an electric vehicle in the next 12 months. Whatever it is, just asking people to make a a written pledge. Now, that pledge can also be public. You can ask people to write down a note, take a selfie. You can put it on Instagram or Facebook, and you can collect selfies of people writing these notes from all these different people and maybe put it on, like, an Instagram page that's just for that. Or if you're somewhere where people come together, like a school or a workplace, you can take a photo, print them all out, and then put them on a wall so everybody's walking past them all day and when people make these pledges and these pledges are made public they really stick to them like that sense of trust that I've made a promise and I need to stick to my promise it's remarkably powerful every time I've tried this technique it really really works on people and you can wrap it into a star chart as well so if you get somebody to write down I commit to going plastic free for seven days seven day plastic free challenge they're making that commitment they're making that promise and then you're also tracking action towards a goal and getting them to you know give themselves like a sticker or a smiley face like every day for seven days as they go through that process it kind of creates this accountability you can make it public or people can just do it privately but it's making that commitment making that promise to try to adjust their behaviors and a little tip on time-based challenges shorter works better than longer 
And you want to use foot in the door technique. Foot in the door technique is asking people to do a tiny change before you ask them to do a big change. Don't ask someone to go vegan. Don't even ask them to go for meat-free Monday. Don't even necessarily ask them to have a vegan dinner. Some people are so against everything vegetarian, you just can't even get in like that. What you ask them to take is one vegan chicken nugget. And maybe that's not foot in the dory enough. You want them to take one bite of one vegan chicken nugget. I mean, some people are just like so deeply rooted in eating meat and animal products. To eat a vegan chicken nugget is so strange for them. All you're gonna be able to do is get them to take one bite and that one bite. A journey of a thousand vegan chicken nuggets is made up from a single bite structure your system that people you're asking people to take these tiny bites and these tiny bites these tiny commitments you're asking people on will pave the way they'll build the relationship they'll kind of like lubricate the axle they'll start to melt the ice cube to be able to start asking people for more bigger things later on People ask me often, like, oh, cool, Katie, all this stuff works for, you know, people like you living in California and in the Bay Area where everybody's like super green. What are you going to do for people who live out in that town, in that state, you know, who think and do things like this? Well, we think about the tipping point that we want the culture to move across is the answer to that. But to bring it back to the foot in the door technique, just ask people for very tiny things, very tiny things to help kind of like almost like breaking up a, a tight muscle or something like that. And... The last bit of the nudges is norms. Norms means what everybody else is doing or what everybody thinks everyone else is doing or what we think is expected of us. Really, really powerful. Humans copy the behaviors of others. You basically just need to get people to copy what everybody else is doing. Once everybody else is doing it, everybody else will start doing it because it becomes a norm. Everybody used to smoke. That was the norm. Now they don't. You can use photographs of norms. Like if you want people to not litter, show pictures of people living zero waste. Don't show pictures of litter with a big like X in front of it. We don't want to show what we want people to not do. We want to show people aspirational pictures of what we want people to do. Really happy, awesome people with the EV. Look at my beautiful solar panels and my amazing family. Look at my incredible low carbon emissions business or city or whatever. These norms, you know, they can be written or they can be in pictures. So just look through the language that you're doing. A great way to phrase norms is to say something like 87% of people are doing it this way and then show a photo of what people are doing. One mistake I see happening a lot, and I saw it at the California Academy of Sciences, was they'll do something like, say, 5 million trillion plastic bottles go into the ocean every year because people use disposable plastic. Don't use disposable plastic bottles. Disposable plastic bottles are bad. And here's a picture of somebody using a disposable plastic bottle. Okay, that instantly triggers to the unconscious mind that everybody else is doing it and there's somebody doing it. So I will instantly want to copy that other person doing that because deep in our unconscious mind, we copy other people. That is going to be such a strong, stronger driver in people. It's such a powerful unconscious driver in people. These top end, more cerebral intellectual part, just be like, oh, maybe that's not a good idea. I shouldn't do that. It's usually not powerful enough to override that underlying mechanism. Super easy way to flip that around. You just be like more and more people are using reusable bottles. There's an incredible movement of people. People everywhere all over the world are using reusable bottles and they're giving up plastic. We're stopping all of this plastic going into the ocean. Here's a photo of this really cool, awesome person using their reusable water bottle. That's how you do it. And then the person triggers that. They're like, I want to be like that person. I'm going to copy that behavior. That's what I need to do. That's my unconscious immediate instruction. 
My animal brain will copy that. So write it in words, do it in norms. And if you don't have data, just use generic qualitative statements like everybody is doing it this way. More and more people are doing it this way. This is the coolest thing to do right now. Did you know that there's this new trend of everybody doing this stuff? Just write it in a way that makes it sound like it's a growing trend. Now we're up to the seventh phase of the behavior mapping process, which is called enhancers. Now these are behavioral nudges, but I took them out into their own section and called them enhancers because I think they're they're ways that you can make the call to action or they can make your project more fun or more exciting or more salient. I have the enhancers divided into these two categories of identity and novelty. And by the way, if you want the wall poster so you can go through all of this and see it in detail, do jump on to my Patreon. It'll be linked in the podcast. It's patreon.com forward slash Katie Patrick. Choose the $25 a month tier and I will send you one of these in the mail as a welcome present along with the printed out cards that explain this. This stuff will just change your life when you know how to implement it. $25 a month, like it's like almost nothing. Like nobody teaches this stuff. This is like a, a deep level of design thinking and behavioral thinking knowledge that hasn't gotten out there. So in my opinion, it's a steal. And you get to have the wonderful opportunity of supporting my work in environmental psychology and also learning how to master all this stuff. So link is in the notes. Jump on there and get your beautiful behavior mapping poster. Okay, jumping into the enhancers. Like what we've got here is with identity you want to come up with like a group name or a group identity like I thought of something that was called like the the avocado city people or the orchard gang or something like that that does fruit sharing there's a a podcast called energy gang you know like something fun like that that when people join your group they get like a a name or like you know like a sticker or a badge they get to feel like they're part of something and you want to do group activities like once you've figured out you know all this stuff how can you bring people together in groups because people socially bond and then they start to imitate each other and they start to develop a sense of a group norm so if you can set the group norm is that we are these people that do this particularly low carbon thing or this particularly biophilically progressive thing you bring people together and then they will all start norming to that group behavior really really powerful stuff think about everything through the lens of humans copying the behavior of other humans and with identity, you can come up with just something like a like a wearable pin or a sticker, you know, like a gift when they join. And you can use this concept called priming. I've talked a lot before about how education doesn't necessarily work to drive action, but education does do this concept of priming. Think of it something like an undercoat of a wall. Like you have to like prime the surface so the coat of paint sticks. You can use educational experiences, entertainment experiences, documentaries, uh, books, groups, conferences. You can use these type of fun or interesting or educational experiences as a primer gets people psychologically primed when you ask them to take the action. A lot of people just get stuck in the priming without the action bit. But you want to think about that. How are you going to prime people psychologically so when you ask for the thing that you want them to do, they're already in a pro-environmental headspace. We're moving on to novelty now. Novelty is part of the enhancers. Now, novelty is this really fascinating feature that we have in our our minds that we're very attracted to novelty. We want things to change all the time. So look at what you can do. Look at how you can add like animations, like stuff that just attracts attention in the environment or in your app or in your project. Make it change. Make it move. Make it colorful. Just ask your question, you know, is it novel? Is it different all the time? 
And this is where you can use things like XR and AR to do something different and novel. There's a program called Spark AR where you can make face filters. People use it for making, you know, like colorful filters and, you know, the bunny ears and the fake makeup and stuff like that. But you can put like environmental themes in there. And those type of games or those type of filters probably aren't going to do the the heavy lifting of decarbonization and big changes that you want to get out there, but they can increase the novelty and they can attract attention through novelty and they can get people to feel emotionally closer through novelty. So you've got to understand where all of these ideas fit in the entire behavior map. You can use interesting characters like little monsters and, and critters and creatures and frogs that you design up with eyes and faces. Like don't underestimate the power of fun, cute characters to develop emotional connection. And you want to have the design that's changing. You know, like don't have it always look the same. Don't have everything green and brown all the time or blue and green like the earth. Like make it novel, make it different, make something happen that's unexpected and make it unique. Do something that just like doesn't look like everybody else. Make it different. And I added this other section of public art, which I think just has so much potential. Like what big artistic installation can you do that will attract attention? They had one of these in Sydney where they got an artist to make a a bronze skeleton of a polar bear. And then they froze the outside of the polar bear. So it was like an, it was called like the ice bear. So they got an ice carver, or maybe they molded it. I don't know how you make I don't know how you make a realistic ice bear. But they did out of ice, and then they sat it in the most downtown part of Sydney. And then over the space of I don't know a couple of days, however long long it take, it slowly melted. It was this like incredible media stunt of public art. The media stunt itself isn't going to be the thing that, you know, sucks up all the carbon from the atmosphere, but it can be used as a really big and emotionally powerful attention-grabbing exercise that can get people's attention to lead them down the path to ultimately take the action that you want them to take. And I just think there's so much that can be done if you're a creative person. Just start thinking through what sort of public structures could we have that just used sound or movement or light or stories to, to grab people's attention and to take them on some type of journey. And one really interesting example that was done at this kind of intersection of characters and public art and trash cans was they got this, this bin, like an outdoor trash can, and they made it into the shape of an eagle head. And the surrounding area got 30% less litter because it was because of this really novel looking experience of this trash can that looked like a bird. And you kind of almost wanted to go up to it and put your trash in there. Don't just stop at making one tiny hole in the trash can for trash and one big hole for compost. Make it into a full three-dimensional big moving frog that like says things or has noises so you just can't help but desperately go up to it and sort your waste exactly right. The world is our oyster with how creative we can get. Okay, okay. Now the last section is rewards. Thank you for hanging on with me till the end, going through the behavior mapping process here. I'm sure you're excited to go through this in even more detail in the Climate Action Design Masterclass that I'll be hosting shortly. So ultimately, after you've done the action, you want to give people a reward. The brain has a reward mechanism. We want to track progress towards the goal and then we want to get rewarded. So this is where we get to be really fun and really creative and dive into the rewards. So these can be digital badges, digital awards or physical awards. The reward itself could just be an animation. 
like confetti that you see on apps. It could just be a positive message that says good job. You could have a character that gives expressions like love hearts. Some games have assets, digital assets that creatures accrue as they go through the game. So if you're having something like Eat the Dots, they can get a sword or a hat or a cape or some makeup or a cool kind of like smoothie cup or something. My daughter had an app that where she got like a smoothie cup and we were very motivated to get through the game to get our smoothie cup. They can be like physical awards, like just like a free veggie burger, you know, or like a free gift card at Whole Foods or something. And you can change your color as you level up. If you're moving through colors, you know, kind of like karate belt colors like I want to get to green belt I want to get to blue belt I want to get to black belt give people that sense of reward as they level up and they change their color and using random rewards this is what casinos do this is why it hooks people's dopamine system into gambling because of the randomness of when they get the reward so just think through if there's a way to get randomness somehow into your reward system You can give people smiley faces, just progressing to the next level. Hey, you're on level two. Awesome job. You're up to level three now. Unlocking things. All games have this. They have these locked things, these kind of grayed out areas where you have to achieve something in order to unlock something else. And if you've got multiple people competing and comparing, you want to show how people are outperforming others. Like, hey, look, you just did like better than another 20% of people. Like, look how you're going compared to everybody else. All games that have lots of players do this where they're ranking people and showing how you're performing compared to everybody else. And another thing you can do is a sense of like cleaning up. There's a lot of games and they seem to be targeted at girls women seem to be really into this it's similar to kind of like eat the dots where you have to clean stuff you know it could just be like a garden that has like sort of dirty holes and you kind of just really want to clean it up or sometimes it's like literally like a cleaning game little girls like to like to do this it can be sometimes a face like a dirty face and then you have to clean it up so it's still kind of measuring progress but perhaps you know there's something like a city or a park and it's got litter on it and you want to move it through something where you get a sense of that you're sort of cleaning up the forest as you go. You can even use education as a reward like an infographic fun fact. You go through something, you do something good and then boom, here is a beautiful 30 second animated infograph of some really wonderful little learning experience that's beautifully put together. And you can also do this all with stickers, like give somebody a sticker. Really simple, doesn't need to be an app design, doesn't need any funding. Everybody can use stickers. You get a sticker when you do a good job. Do it in your office, do it with employees. You can do it with anything. It can be high tech, it can be low tech. You just want to use these mechanisms that target the deep drivers in the human psyche and do it in the most easiest, efficient and fun way there is. That is the end. That is the end of the behavior mapping process. Thank you for listening. I am thrilled if you made it all the way through to the end. And I really hope you will join me on my Climate Action Design Masterclass where we can go through all of these in more detail, go through the studies, go through more examples, get your physical behavior map. It's beautiful. I've got it in front of me right now, all printed out. I'm really happy with how it's came up. And I'm also making a card deck. So you'll be able to lay out your behavior map. You'll have 100 cards like playing cards, and then you can go through each one of them. And every time you see one of these features that you think will work for you, you put down the playing card. You're like, okay, geographic granularity, we totally need that. Okay, ABC grade, definitely doing that one. Okay, random rewards, and we're doing that. And sometimes when you look through this behavior map, you may only use three or four of all the mechanisms that we went through today. I just went over 100 different mechanisms. You may use half of them, you may only use a couple. 
But by going through them, this is how you come up with the magic idea. It can take up to six hours in some cases to really go through this in detail for something that you want to change. But then once you do it, you'll just find that one thing. You're like, oh, we have to get that data, display it like that and like that. Like they're my four different mechanisms I'm going to use and we're going to do it like this and then just boom. You've got your perfect, elegant, stripped down, beautiful and simple, elegant idea. They say the art of elegance is to take something away. We look at everything and then we pick out the gems that we want to use and put them together so you'll come up with a really beautiful, elegant, stripped down, niche idea that's really powerful, that's just like pushing on that place in the muscle that's going to that's gonna release it. You're not giving some wishy-washy all over body massage. It's not going to work. You're just like right in there exactly where you need to be to try and make the change and to change the God metric. So I would love it if you would jump on Patreon and join the Climate Action Design Masterclass. I'm really excited to develop a community of people that are a bit more deeply invested in my work so I can start making better quality work and start sending it out to people. Like I am so excited to go and mail out this physical behavior map to all of the Patreon supporters right now. I love making this stuff and every month I'm going to be sending something out new that I'm making or that I'm working on and just to know that there's a group of people that are committed to making this this membership this small financial contribution every month that I can then spend a bit more time on making good quality stuff and it also covers a bit of printing a bit of mailing that's no problem and there's so many more things that I'm working on that I'll be able to send out to this patreon only community would love to have you there thanks for listening And good luck mapping the journey of environmental change, the environmental revolution. That is what we're mapping. We are mastering the art of climate action design. It's a thrill to do. It couldn't be more fun, really. Like, what else would you want to do with your life but this? Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week on the podcast.